0: Well, we are in a series on apologetics called Within Reason. Apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia. Uh, We get our word apology from that, but it's not an apology. It is a defense of, not in a combative way, but a defense of the faith. And uh, so we are talking um, several weeks here about, is there evidence around us for God? Last week was part one, and we talked about the Uh, intricacy that we see in nature and life we talked about the human eye we talked about the flagellum that uh, navigates bacteria around the body Um, next week we're going to talk about is there evidence for God uh, based on the universe uh, looking at the cosmos today we want to talk about is there evidence for God and specifically looking at the reality of morality in the world And I'll define morality this morning as simply a code of right and wrong, a code of right and wrong. And I want to ask four questions and then make a statement as we close. And the four questions are, one, do human beings have a moral code? Two, where does this code come from if they do? Three, is a moral code possible with God? And that's a question that's being asked more and more in our day. And then the converse question, is a moral code possible without God? And then we'll make a final statement from there. Do human beings have a moral code? Do human beings have a moral code? And it's fair to ask this question when you uh, look at the headlines of the news and you see things like war and uh, theft and... Uh, sexual abuse—it's just all kinds of ugly stuff in our world. We say this is not a a perfectly moral world, and that's true. And yet, most would agree, and that includes most people who don't believe that there's a God. Most would agree that there is a a, a moral code in people to this degree that we are inclined not to steal, we are inclined not to rape, and not to murder, and we do think that we should help the disabled. We do think that you should rescue the abused, and we do think that you should return money, no matter whether you believe in a god or which god or no god at all. And secularists and atheists would insist on this. They say, yes, there's some, there's some instinct. There's a, there's a moral code in everybody. Whether it's acted upon is a different matter. We have people that, who are um, uh, criminals, who are narcissists, who are mentally ill and so forth, and they, they would say there's always exceptions to that. So most people would say, yes, human beings have a moral code. The question where we divide is where does this code come from? And, of course, if you're a theist, and the word theist simply means you believe in a god or gods, a theist would say it comes from God. And this would be true whether you talk to a Jewish person or a Muslim or a Christian or, or an animist who recognizes, you know, 50 gods in the woods, that the code comes from God, and therefore, it's a static code. In other words, it doesn't change. It doesn't morph. Uh, and we would say, as Christians that that code um, comes from God in the form in the in the uh, the media, I guess, of scripture on the one hand and on the other hand of conscience. So we would have the scriptures before us today, and we'll look at the scriptures before our time is up together because we believe that this is an authoritative word from God that tells us right is this category, wrong is this category. And this is going to stay the same, and this is going to stay the same, general, down through history. And then there is the conscience. And we would say that no matter whether you recognize the Scripture or not as authoritative from God, that what you bear within you imprints God's moral code on you whether you worship him or reject him altogether. And the key verse for that is in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And Paul, in these first couple of chapters, he has been talking about the uh, innate wickedness of man. Um, He's speaking especially about the Gentiles in the first chapter. And then he's got a Jewish audience listening to him as well. And he says, by the way... Don't forget that you who criticize the Gentiles, you, you do the same bad things. And then he says this in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 14. Even Gentiles who do, not know, who do not have God's written law, in other words, they don't have the Old Testament, they show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written on their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them Or tell them they are doing right so this is why someone who rejects God out of hand can still be a a neighbor that you can live beside and get along with you don't have to worry about them stealing your mail or toilet papering your trees Uh, maybe the kids will but you don't have to worry about them running down your kids when they come home and pull in in their driveway There's a a basic moral code, and you might say, well, they don't do those things because they don't want to face the consequences of human law. That's certainly a possibility. But in general, most people won't do those kinds of things because there's something within them that says, no, I I shouldn't do that, uh, human law uh, or not. So they have this conscience within them that has really been with people from all time, all places, all cultures, back in about 300 years before Moses wrote the law in the Old Testament, there was a Babylonian ruler by the name of Hammurabi. And if you go to the Louvre Museum in Paris today, you can see an almost 8-foot eight t- eight 4-ton uh, um, piece of rock. And it has the code of Hammurabi inscribed in it. And it's interesting the kinds of laws that he had for his empire when he was a ruler. In fact, they, some of them are so similar to the Old Testament law that people believe that really the Jews simply stole Hammurabi's code for the law of Moses, that it wasn't divinely given to them by God. For example, uh, imprinted on this code in Hammurabi's law, it says that the purpose of these laws to prevent the strong from oppressing the weak and to see that justice is done to widows and orphans. Doesn't that sound like the Old Testament covenant? Now, we would say, no, that's not the case. The Jews didn't steal it from Hammurabi. God stole it from God. Did I just say God stole it from God? Hate that, 66. That's my excuse every time. So Hammurabi stole it from God. And, And you would find these kinds of laws throughout cultures. In fact, if you read C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Abolition of Man, he has a lengthy index at the back of the book where he goes from culture to culture to culture to culture and quotes from their laws to see how duplicative they are from culture to culture, from generation to generation. There's variations to be sure, but the, the basic code is replicated down through time, and across cultures. Now, those who are secularists in our world would reject the notion that God has given a moral code to people, and they would say, in fact, you would see this across the board, no matter what kind of secularist they are, that they would credit evolution for this development of a moral code. Um, Morality is a byproduct of human... Development, uh, I'm sorry, human evolution. So says Darwin in his book, The Descent of Man. Morality is a byproduct of human evolution. And he would say there is something uh, small but nonetheless significant in the human that is not in our primate ancestors. In other words, in the apes that came before us, if you believe in that, um, that process of evolution, humanity, human evolution. Morality is a byproduct of human evolution, and these, these small differences between us and those ape ancestors are to thank for us being committed to not stealing, not raping, and not murdering, things like that. Morality is a byproduct of human evolution. Morality is a historical norm. Christopher Hitchens, uh, who was one of the four horsemen of the uh, atheistic, new atheistic movement, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, Uh, he's dead now. He passed away in I think it was uh, 2011 or something like that. He wrote this. I think our knowledge of right and wrong is innate in us. Remember, he's an atheist. Religion gets its morality from humans. Isn't it interesting how the the waters flow there? He says that our morality comes, uh, or religion draws its morality from humanity. We know that we can't get along if we permit perjury, theft, murder, rape. All societies at all times, which we would agree with, well before the advent of uh, monarchies, have forbidden these kinds of things. Now he would argue, and all the prominent atheists of the day would argue this, that how it developed, how it evolved in humanity, is that we determined There are certain things that are to my advantage and other things that are not. There are certain things that are to the advantage of the group that I'm part of and other things that are not. And so we learn, for example, not to rape. We learn not to murder. We learn not to steal. Now, the problem with those kinds of arguments is they only work up to a point. At some point, um, stealing becomes advantageous from another group. Right? You following me? If I don't have uh, either enough food to eat, what's to keep me from stealing from another neighboring group? Because I want to eat. By the same way, if there's not enough women in my tribe to go around, what's to stop me from snatching a woman from another nearby tribe? You see the flaw in the thinking. Yes, there might be an evolution of moral behavior within our group, Over time based on what serves my purposes or our group's purposes but that's not going to keep me from doing any of these other what we would consider immoral things with people outside my group and the last point under this is that morality belief of secularists is that morality will progress positively and I think this is the absolute most incomprehensible conclusion Again, the belief that what will benefit me and my group will continue to—I will continue to think better and better about that—and so social Darwinists expect that we will get better and better. We will. There will be less and less crime. There will be less and less mistreatment of other people. Now we'll test whether that optimism is warranted in just a little bit. Let's move on to the third question. Is a moral code possible with God? Is a moral code possible with God? You say, what do you mean? Many people that you go to school with, that you work with, that you live next door to, that you are friends with, believe that what is wrong with the world is religion. Now, if you go back maybe 60, 80 years... That was not a commonly held uh, concern. The Enlightenment uh, brought more and more of that to the table, but there were still many people who would have looked at religion and seen it as something valuable to society, that it brought uh, brought merit to society, helped keep evil at bay. Not anymore. Most secularists see religion as a problem to be solved. Why? Why? Look at the headlines. Catholic priests, pedophile, over and over and over, splashed across the headlines. Protestant pastors fleecing the flock. They live in $10 million, $15 million mansions. Protestant pastors having affairs with women in their congregations. And the journalists love, why do these kinds of things appear in the headlines? because of the conviction that religion is the problem. And we have uh, a linkage that has occurred in the wake of 9-11 that has become problematic for those of us, especially in evangelical Christian circles. It wasn't long after the attacks that took down the Twin Towers before journalists started talking about not just Muslims... But Muslim fundamentalists, remember this? there was a shift. Early on, it was perceived that uh, Islam was the problem, but journalists quickly perceived that was a bad thing, and so they became the problem Muslims, became the Muslim fundamentalists, the ones who were taking their scriptures to extremes. And it wasn't long before... Christian fundamentalists got wedded to Islamic fundamentalists. And now we were talking not just about two different religious streams, but specifically all religious people who are wackos. Now Christianity, when they use the word fundamentalist with Christianity, there is a legitimate historical um, reason for doing that. Back in the early 1900s, there was this fundamentalist slash modernist controversy within the church, Um, probably early 1900s up until 1930s or so. And the one side were those who believed in orthodox biblical teaching. Those were called the fundamentalists. And the reason for that was because they drew up a a list of the fundamentals of the faith, things like, yes, Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. Yes, Jesus literally rose bodily from the dead. Yes, there is a heaven and a hell. Yes, in other words, all the things that their counterparts in the Christian church, the modernists, were rejecting. And so Christians were divided between fundamentalists and non-fundamentalists. But now today, the word fundamentalist, when it's applied to a Christian, means that you actually believe the things in the Bible, and that makes you scary. That makes you dangerous. You might just fly a plane into a tower. You might just strap on a suicide vest and blow yourself and everybody around you up. You just might do that. If you think I'm mistaken, ask somebody who is a secularist, who doesn't believe in a God, how they view people who believe the Bible, Christians who believe the Bible. And my guess is nine times out of 10, they're going to tell you um, in gentle terms that they don't really trust you, you're a scary person. So we have that working against us. Again, people looking at religious people as scary folks, people to be afraid of, people to be worried about, people who are against science and against progress. And then we have uh, a checkered history as a Christian people. Uh, We unfortunately have a a history in some quarters, in some periods of time, of racism. Uh, Martin Luther, who we would trace our lineage to, Martin Luther broke with the Roman Catholic Church and tried to restore what we believe was restoring biblical teaching from way back in the early church days, Uh, Martin Luther, however, wrote some horrible things about Jewish people. I mean, if you've ever read them, you're just like, is he saved? It's awful. And we have anti-Semitism in specific places throughout Christian history, among specific people. You look at countries that were considered Christian countries. U.S., but... Back earlier, Great Britain. Great Britain would go to places like India and colonize those places, and rape the country of its resources and and mistreat the people. I uh, uh, the um, the British uh, what is Far East? I forget what the name of the Far East. Um, East India Trade Company. What's that? East India Trade Company. Thank you, East India Trade Company. All I could think of was Far East Broadcasting Company. So uh, the East India Trade Company would take in business people and uh, folks to harvest the, the, res- the natural resources there, but they would also take in missionaries. And they, this is my read on it. They would justify what they did to the country and what they did to the people by saying, we're bringing Christianity to them. And then, of course, we have uh, the Crusades to talk about. Um, If you have never done any reading on the Crusades, you should. Because what you're hearing about the Christian Crusades in popular culture, whether from journalists or even uh, people that write extensive books on them, tend to be skewed. It's not nearly as neat, tidy, and simple as is often portrayed by secular journalists. Uh, Back when President uh, Obama was in office, he basically made the case that whatever happens to us um, at the hands of Islamic terrorists uh, is is justified because of the Crusades. That is such a um, revision of history, It's, it's, it's not even worth addressing except that it's gotten legs in our culture. So the Crusades took place, here's rough categories, 1,000 A.D. to 1250 A.D., five of them. And they were purportedly to rescue um, the Holy Lands from the Muslims. And that was part of the issue. And nobody ever talks about the fact that Islamic armies swept across North Africa and tried to sweep across Europe starting in the seventh century A.D. And what was Christian lands, North Africa, Carthage, Egypt, and so forth, all of a sudden, at the point of the sword, were forced to convert. And so the Christian forces left that go for really several hundreds of years. What was happening, though, there were still Christians who would go from Europe and elsewhere to make pilgrimage to the Holy Lands. And they were getting robbed and they were getting murdered and so forth. And Pope finally called for a a crusade, a holy war, to liberate the Holy Lands, make them safe for Christian pilgrims again. Now, there's a lot more involved. There were a lot of politics involved, uh, a lot more politics than religion involved in the whole thing. Uh, especially one or two of the Crusades were notorious for killing Jews on the way to the Holy Land. Again, a lot of anti-Semitism exists. Uh, I'm just saying it's not all a one-sided story. And if you want to read more about it, Rodney Stark is a good book called God's Battalions. Rodney Stark is a social uh, historian. Uh, I think that's the best way to put it. Um, f- emphasis on religion and very interesting, uh, good counterbalance Also, a book that was just written uh, last year by Rebecca uh, McLaughlin um, called, it's an apologetics book called called Confronting Christianity, uh, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. And she addresses the crusades uh, in there as well. Um, And again, the people who are criticizing all religious people um, perceive Christians to be The obstacles to progress in culture and so they see our opposition to things like gay marriage and reproductive rights as impediments to moving uh, moving forward so again the question is a moral code possible with God is being asked by secularists this is the bad here's the good that you can counterbalance with with people the whole hospital movement began with Christians the first hospital was uh, put together by a Christian in very early uh, Christian, I think uh, two hundred AD, something like in the two hundreds. Um, and 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 the Christian church has had a a track record of caring for the sick for a very, very long time. Uh, the plague of Cyprian, you can talk with your secular friends about this because it is well documented both by Christian and pagan sources. The plague of Cyprian, uh, took place 249 to 262 A.D. At, at one point, they were—they said five thousand people a day were dying in the Roman Empire, and the people were—it fle- started in Carthage. The people were fleeing this main cities because they thought it was the only way to escape death. So the only people that stayed behind in the cities were the sick and the dying, and the Christians. The Christians were the ones who stayed behind and who cared for the sick and buried the dead and in many cases themselves got sick and died. Why? Because they knew they had a future and they knew they had a call to minister to the people that they lived among. And even pagan sources write about how it was not the pagans who stayed and cared for the sick. It was the Christians. the hospitals and the caring for the sick. Universities were started by Christians. The whole university movement started by Christians. As we said last week, science, the scientific revolution was begun by Christians. Uh, Science is really indebted to Christianity. It's not indebted to secularists. The first nursing homes were begun by Christians uh, early, mm, that's wrong, 19th century. Um, and continues to be um, continues to be the case. many of the nursing homes retirement homes in our area are attached attached to Mennonites, uh, brethren in Christ, Church of the brethren, lutherans, Catholics. Um, the fight against addictions, uh, addictions, and alcoholism initially a Christian fight late 1800s early Uh, 1900s the whole temperance movement was driven by Christians Um, the uh, opioid epidemic that we have right now the first opioid epidemic was late 1800s and again Christians in the forefront of that battle not only to fight the um, the sources but to help the people who were caught up and victimized by it. Christians and who ended the slave trade by and large Christians Christians were at the forefront of the abolition movement in the United States And uh, Wilberforce in England almost single-handedly beat the English, uh, British slave trade, Christian again. So those are some answers for your friends when they ask if there's a moral code that's possible with God. We don't need a paper over the bad stuff, but we can point out many things that Christians are responsible for that have really uh, improved the society we live in and morality in general. Then the next question, and this is the big question. Is a moral code possible without God? Is a moral code possible without God? And now I'm talking, uh, we've already made the case that a moral code exists in us. But in culture, is a moral code possible without God? And uh, Russian novelist Dostoevsky's uh, novel, The Brothers uh, Karamazov, he had one of the main characters, Ivan Karamazov, ask, make this statement If there is no God, everything is permitted. If there is no God, everything is permitted. In other words, people who believe in God believe that there's a day of reckoning, so that everything that they do and say is going to be passed before the bar of a holy God. That's true whether you are a Jew. Or a Christian, or a Muslim, and so Ivan ins- insists that if that's off the table, then anything, everything is permitted. And the secular atheists today, who the new atheists, who are making the charge that religion is the problem with the world, and and secularism is the wave of the future, and where we really should go. Are trying to argue that as we've become more secular, we've become better. Anybody know what communism is? All right, communism's a hundred years old now. Soviet Union, Russia started it first. So when Stalin came to power in Russia, over the next decades of his reign, he is documented to have killed in the neighborhood of 60 million people, his own people, Russians, those in the Soviet orbit, 60 million people. What's interesting is Stalin initially studied to be a priest. Did you know that? And then he lost his vision of God. Pol Pot, late 1970s, killed 2 million of his fellow Cambodians. The killing fields. Anybody who was a doctor or a professor or a teacher or a businessman was suspect. They were killed. Everybody was forced out of the cities, out of the countryside to have the pure communist system. You're all going to work the fields. You're going to work the lands. Mao Zedong, in the wake of World War II, tried to turn China into this um, communist Garden of Eden. And he did it on the backs of about seventy-seven million people. Now, what what is true of communism religiously? They teach not just that it's not just acceptable that there's no God. They teach there is no God. No God is systemic in communism. The track record of secularism is not great. Today, as we've gotten more and more secular. Uh, you interview students, college students say, 86% of them say they've cheated in college. 54% of them say there's nothing wrong with cheating. Just 16 years ago, uh, just 16 years ago, 60% of people, and th- this is going to be a a contended uh, What am I trying to say? Continued stat. Not that the stat has changed, but whether or not it's bad that it's changed. Sixteen years ago, 60% of Americans were against gay marriage. In 16 years, that statistic has exactly reversed. Sixty-one percent now say in America they are in favor of gay marriage. And I don't think that's going to bring greater and greater health to society. Domestic violence in America, every year since 2014, the rates are up. Racism, here we are 160 years after Lincoln freed America's slaves, and yet racism remains. Uh, We've made progress, I'm convinced of that, but if you listen to critics at our nation's universities and in places as liberal as Silicon Valley, they insist that it remains and indeed is getting worse in those contexts. It's interesting that one of these four horsemen of the new atheism, Sam Harris, is concerned himself that without God, morality will erode. In other words, that evolutionary cycle won't make us better and better. He tells a story of being at a conference which was made up of all secularists. And in that conference, he was critical of the Taliban for making women dress in a bag from head to foot, and if they tried to get out of it, to be beaten or even killed. And a woman came up to him after the conference, and she had been a presenter at the conference. She had already given a speech there as well. He said a perfectly lucid, uh, excellent speech, he thought. And she said, how can you say that the Taliban are wrong? And he says, by the time my eyebrows came back to my face from the back of my head, he said, I, I asked her, what do you mean? She said, well, how can you determine that they're doing something that's wrong? You don't know their culture. You live in the U.S. You're. How can you pass judgment on them? He said, well, are you saying that we can never say there's anything wrong and anything right? And she said, well, not necessarily. He said, let's say we would find a culture that would remove the eyeballs of every third child that was born to them. He said, would you say that was wrong? She said, well, that would depend. He said, let's suppose that they had a scripture for it, something like every third should walk in darkness, or some such nonsense. She said, well, then you couldn't say that they were wrong. And here's an atheist who gets it, at least this much, that without God, everything is permitted. And no one could look at anyone else and say, what you are doing is right or what you are doing is wrong. And by the same token, you can't look at me and say, what I'm doing is right or what I'm doing is wrong. There's simply no objective place to start. There's no one outside of me who stands in judgment of me. I think Sam Harris is spot on to worry about this. The most famous atheist in the last century, Frenchman by the name of Jean-Paul Sartre, was also the most, most ruthless, and I would say the most honest. His form of philosophy was existentialism. And he said this, existentialism is nothing else than an attempt to draw all the conclusions of a coherent atheist position. And what he means by that is when we strip life of God We are free, and we should live free. So what if the secular optimists are all wrong? What if Harris has every right to be nervous? That instead of evolving to be better, we evolve to be worse. If you're a football player, and you not only want to hit the guy on the opposite side of your scrimmage line, but you want to hurt him, do it. If you want to look elsewhere when your wife irritates you or doesn't do what you want, go for it. If you're short on money for your bills this week, and you want to mug somebody in the streets, why not do that? In other words, there's nothing that anyone can say to you should be off the table for you. So we get to our statement at the end. A universal moral code strongly suggests that there is a God. Remember we said at the beginning of this series, we're not saying that there are proofs that there is God or how he works, but rather they are pointers, they are suggestions, they are evidence. A universal moral code strongly suggests that there is a God. And this moral code, whose, in, which is, uh, whose instincts are good... Point to a, it points to a good God who made a good world. Remember when God had made everything, Genesis chapter 1, he made the sky, he made the, the moon and the stars, he made the lands, he made the, the seas, he made uh, the birds, he made the animals, he made the caterpillars, he made human beings. And he looked at everything that he had seen and he said, it is not too bad. Is that what he said? Very good. Very good. And then we get a couple chapters later, Genesis chapter 3, and sin enters the world. God goes looking for Adam and Eve, something's amiss, and he says, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Sin enters the world. And ever since, mankind has has been trying to figure out a way to make good bad and bad good. Isaiah chapter 5, Verse 20. What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil. And that's a verse that we probably should memorize in our time. What sorrow, for say, uh, uh, what sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil. They are not interchangeable. That's God's argument. A moral code points to a good God who made a good world. And a moral code embedded in every conscience suggests a code giver. Now, before I get to the end here, I want to make a couple of clarifications with regard to the conscience. One, the conscience is not pristine, meaning it has to be maintained. It has to be kept clear. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19 indicates we have to pay attention to it. Keep your, keep your con- uh, conscience clear, Paul says, to Timothy. Keep your conscience clear. You have to do some work to keep it tidied up. Why? Because the conscience can be damaged. Titus 115. Conscience can be damaged. Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are corrupted. And ultimately the conscience can be destroyed. 1 Timothy 4.2. <clears throat> Those peop- These people are hypocrites and liars, and their consciences are dead. If you have a more literal translation, it says the conscience has been seared. So just because you have a moral code in you doesn't mean it's going to give you true north. It's The compass can be messed up. The magnetism can be screwed up so that it leads you a different direction if you willfully and continually go this direction instead of this direction. And that helps explain your friends who are like, Man, they were once spot on, and now they're over here. Listen, if you ignore the voice of that conscience again and again and again, don't be surprised when it doesn't work properly for you anymore. And lastly, and this is important for us Christians to understand, the conscience is not the Holy Spirit. The conscience is not the Holy Spirit. Romans 9, verse uh, 1. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter, truth, utter truthfulness, Paul says, "My conscience and the Holy Spirit condemn it. are confirm it. My conscience and the Holy Spirit. The the two are um, very different things. Sorry, Holy Spirit, call you a thing. Uh, conscience is that moral code that's in, placed within us, but it's flawed. It's damaged. Can be uh, become even more flawed. The Holy Spirit is what's placed in a person when they trust Christ." And the Holy Spirit is God himself who now leads us perfectly. doesn't mean we always understand him perfectly, but we always, he always leads us perfectly. Just as a side note, I cannot tell you how many times over the years I have heard believers say as they're trying to make a decision, I have, I have, I have blank about it. What's the word that goes in there? I've thought about this and I've prayed about this and I have peace about it. I have peace about it. And sometimes the things they have peace about are ungodly. I'm like, you shouldn't trust that voice. <laughs> That's not the Holy Spirit. That's I don't know what it is, but it's not the Holy Spirit because the Spirit will never leave you, lead you to do something that God has uh, revealed in his word is un, ungodly. So be careful. The the conscience is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is always um, always examined or his supposed words are always examined by God's words. Now, how do we kind of wrap this up? A number one step with a secularist can be pointing out that they have a moral code embedded. You might just look at them and say, have you ever raped anyone? Um, have you ever stolen from anyone that you didn't feel bad about it? Have you ever killed anybody? Have you, yada, yada, yada. Have you ever done something bad that, you knew you could get away with? And if they say no, say, that's a directional sign pointing to something better in you. But you may want to say, but it's not your destination. Our destination is not, uh, their destination is not just becoming a moral person. In fact, the danger is that a moral code gets people thinking that what they really need to be is just more, more moral. And let's face it, as Christians, we're really good at moralizing with people. You better stop doing this, we'll tell them. You better start doing this. You have to do right and be right. And what they need, you know, we're going to tell them that immorality won't satisfy you. And they can get that message. But what they need to hear us say is that and morality won't save you. Immorality may not satisfy you, but we can guarantee you that morality won't save you. All it can do is testify to God, but it can't be your God. And so the better thing that we want to point them to is the good news, that a bad world welcomed a good hero who doesn't just offer to improve us, but to perfect us. And as people look in despair at the evil and the injustice around them, they need to hear that there's a Jesus who didn't just come to die for that evil out there, but for this evil in here, the evil that's in them and the evil that's in us. And Father, would you give us uh, opportunities and opportunities followed by courage on our part to speak to the uh, people who have been shaped by the spirit of the sage, to believe that the only thing that matters for them to do is obey the law so they don't get in trouble and go to jail, but everything else is an option for them. And to listen to that little beacon within them, that small, maybe sometimes tainted moral code that's there and say, hmm, I wonder where that came from. And that we would be able to help those who ponder that question, and point them in a good direction. Not that ends at morality, that ends at the feet of Jesus.